I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. It was almost 1,000 years ago, one of the great theologians and thinkers of the Christian faith, a man by the name of St. Anselm, said, I pray, O God, that I may know you and love you so that I may rejoice in you. You might be wondering why uh, one of the stalwarts of the faith, why a, a godly man like Anselm would pray such a prayer. Well, I think we can draw some important lessons from this very important prayer. One lesson is this, that even the most seasoned and mature Christ followers have moments of doubt and moments of discouragement. You see, it's not unusual, and sometimes we don't like to talk this way, and I think we should be growing very comfortable of talking this way. That you can still be a strong Christian and, and struggle. Even the most mature believer have moments of doubt, have moments of discouragement. It is not unusual for a godly person to experience a season of what some might refer to as spiritual numbness. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had that season of, of spiritual numbness where you were walking through a, a, a certain portion of your life where you were just struggling. It was a dark season. And so Anselm cries out, I pray, O God, that I may know you and love you so that I might rejoice in you. Now, the Apostle Paul understands very well the frailty of the human spirit. In fact, he could have easily penned the 19th century tune that we just sang that offers the following lament. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. If you struggle with thinking about a, a man who penned sacred scripture could utter those words, I would turn your attention to King David. Because David could have easily penned the words from the song that we just sang. Jonah lived those words that we just sang. Peter actually denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. And here's the bottom line this morning. Uh, you could have penned those words, and I could have penned those words. Why? Because you and I understand in a very intimate way that the challenges that we face in the Christian life. We face those challenges on a very regular basis. And so the propensity to enter a season of, of wandering or spiritual discouragement where we walk through what some might categorize as a spiritual wasteland is, in fact, a very real possibility. The possibility of being depressed as a Christian, the possibility of being discouraged as a Christian, the possibility of battling unbelief is something that each person faces in the Christian life. If you think about the 19th century and you think about the history of the church in the 19th century and you think most notably about the United Kingdom, you think about... The, the leading figure, the most popular preacher to, to ever step into 
a British pulpit. Of course, most of you would think of one of my heroes, and his name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. Spurgeon is the one who started the orphanage. Spurgeon is the one who, who started the pastor's college in London. Spurgeon is the one that spoke to literally thousands of people on a weekly basis. And so as a result, he received that label, the Prince of Preachers. Doreen and I, when we were in London last year, had the opportunity to attend one of the services at the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon pastored. It was an amazing experience, just, uh, just realizing uh, the, the lay of the land, knowing that the, the, the man, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, walked in this neighborhood that we had a chance to walk through, that he, he lived in this portion of London, kind of a, a run-down portion of London. Well, the Prince of Preachers battled discouragement. The Prince of Preachers battled depression. In fact, I... I picked one of the books off my shelf I wanted to show you. It's a fairly new title. It's entitled Spurgeon's Sorrows. And the subtitle is Realistic Hope for Those Who Suffer from Depression. Here's a book of almost 150 pages filled with quotes from Charles Haddon Spurgeon that reveals the deepest most intimate portion of his heart that battled depression and battled discouragement. The Prince of Preachers said, I am the subject of depression of spirit, so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Spurgeon said, spiritual sorrows are the worst of mental miseries. See, Spurgeon's battle with discouragement and depression grew so bad as an adult that he would often, he would take time, he would take time by himself to, to go to Italy where it was sunnier, where he could escape the horrible London fog and the rain. And he would get some sun and he would soak in the vitamin D and he would spend time in prayer and meditation before the Lord, spend time in the Word of God, and he would go back refreshed, ready to enter the pulpit. Once again, well, that's Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I want to ask in 2018, far removed from C.H. Spurgeon, what about you? What kind of encouragement do you need to receive today? Do you need strength to live the Christian life? I know I do. Do you need strength to, to flee from some kind of temptation? Do you need strength to boldly proclaim the truth in the marketplace of ideas? Do you need strength to defend the truth of God's word? Do you need strength to remain resolute in these days of, of bitter adversity? Well, the Apostle Paul understands that his friends in Ephesus, like us, need encouragement. And so what does the Apostle Paul do? He offers a prayer for them. Will you stand with me as we read in God's word? the latter portion of Ephesians chapter 3, and read with me beginning in verse 14. And listen to this prayer for spiritual power from Paul the Apostle. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, it is such a pleasure and honor to open the word of God with the people of God to have a chance to learn of your excellency, to have a chance to to dig deep into this prayer written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. God, we know that he had a certain set of priorities in mind as he prayed for the believers in Ephesus and know that he had all of the people of God in his mind as well. And so I pray, God, for anyone here that is in need of encouragement, that today would be a, a day of encouragement. God, if, if there's someone battling depression or discouragement, if someone has been ill over the last week or even several weeks or months, I pray that you would breathe fresh encouragement into someone's soul. God, may our time in the Word of God be of great benefit to us. And we realize that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, We learn nothing. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and be our instructor? Would you help us? Would you grow us deeply in the soil of God's grace? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning has a bit of a masculine edge to it. I think of cars, hot rods. The title of the message is A Supercharged Prayer. And as we study this powerful prayer together, I want you to see two very basic headings. I want you to see first the framework of Paul's prayer. And then we'll take a majority of our time to look together at the focus of God's prayer. The first heading, the framework of Paul's prayer. There are three principles that emerge in verses, 13, or verses 14 and 15. I want to read this for you and then walk through those principles together. He says again, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through the Spirit. The first principle I want you to see that helps us understand the, the framework of Paul's prayer is a very basic principle, and is the principle that leads us to the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. See, immediately after unpacking the, the drama of the gospel, as we referred to that last week, what does Paul do? Immediately on the heels of, of helping the Ephesian believers understand the, the mighty truth and reality of the gospel, what does he do? He prays for the people of God. And since he understands their propensity to wander off and get off track, to get off the beaten path, he prays for them. It's an interesting thing if you ever have the chance to do a study. Throughout his ministry, we find the Apostle Paul praying for people, praying for his friends. We don't have time to look at all the individual passages, but we see that Paul prayed for the Corinthians. 
2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, clearly tells us that Paul prayed for these dear people. We see in Colossians 1, 3, that he prayed for the believers in Colossae. He prayed for the Thessalonians. He prayed for the Philippians. And of course, he prayed, as you know, for the believers in Rome. And so over and over again, we see this this redounding theme that says Paul had a passion to pray for these people. This indicates the priority of prayer. But notice second, there's a second principle that is vitally important, and that is the posture of prayer. Paul assumes now that a posture demonstrates humility. He remembers who he is, and there's an important lesson for you and I there. We remember who we are before the living God by getting on our knees. The ESV uses the the word bow. In In the Christian Standard Bible, the Greek word is translated kneel. It comes from a Greek word that means to worship. And so in verse 14, he says, I kneel before the Father. He, he gets close to God. He says, I recognize who I am. You are the creator. I am in the cre- I'm the creature. I realize that you are the sovereign God. And so I, I bend my knee. I worship you, God. And when he assumes the proper posture, he begins to pour out his heart on behalf of these dear believers in Ephesus. Warren Wiersbe helps us here, and this will help those of you who, like me, have knees that are not what they once were. Do I get an amen? Wow. That's close to revival. (laughs) You will like this then. Warren Wiersbe says, whether we actually bow our knees is not the important thing. That we bow our hearts and our wills to the Lord and ask Him for what we need is a vital matter. One of the things that we do with the elders and the deacons when we meet together, we meet tomorrow night, is after a time of discussion, we have a time of prayer and we get on our knees. If there's ever a time where one of the gentlemen is not able to kneel and, and must sit, we all recognize that, that he is in the posture of kneeling. He remembers like Paul is here, that he is the creature and God is the creator. What is important for us to remember remember this morning, my friends, is that God is drawn to the humble man. He is drawn to the humble man. Hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 3 and look with me over at the book of James. The book of James chapter 4. And in James chapter 4, we learn an absolutely crucial message that reminds us of the the very importance of humility. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. God's word says, He gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Or as one translation says, he will lift you up. C.J. Mahaney wrote a book several years ago entitled Humility, 
Uh, it's, it's one of those books, I've lost track of how many times I've read it. It's an absolutely important book. And C.J. Mahaney says that humility draws the gaze of our sovereign God. He derives that principle from James chapter 4, where the author says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Mahaney goes on. He says, God is personally and providentially supportive of the humble. So we've seen this morning, we've seen the the priority of prayer. We've seen the posture of prayer. Now I want you to notice something as we conclude this heading on Paul's framework of prayer. I want you to see what I've labeled as the pattern of prayer. The pattern of prayer. Once again in verse 14, notice who Paul addresses in specific. Notice that he does not address the Holy Spirit, who is eternal and co-equal with God the Father and the Son. Notice he does not address God the Son, who is also co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Who does he address? He addresses God the Father. And while each member of the Trinity, as I've already indicated, is fully God, he understands. He understands, as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, 9, that our prayer, listen, our prayer is to be directed to whom? It's to be directed to God the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. I must tell you that I have had some very difficult conversations about this particular topic because when my children, when Doreen and I had children that were very young and they would pray these cute prayers that went something like this, dear Jesus, right? It just warms your heart, right? And I would jump in and say, well, let's, let's address God the Father, the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit. And I had adults tell me, I mean, it was borderline child abuse. Like you would stop a kid in the middle of his prayer and say, don't pray to Jesus. After all, Jesus is co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. But that's not the point, is it? The point is that Jesus has instructed us to direct our prayers to God the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit. My friend Bruce Ware says it like this. The Father then... As supreme authority over even his own son and the spirit is the one to whom we gladly but humbly address our prayers. And so we realize then that a proper understanding of the Trinity becomes very important, not only for adults, but important for children as well as we grow in our understanding of prayer. Move with me now. To the second heading, what we have referred to as the focus of God's prayer. Excuse me. The focus of God's prayer. Beginning of verse 16. Paul says, I pray now that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depths of God's love, to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, 
in order to understand the focus of God's prayer, we need to do a, a little bit of legwork. In order to understand the basis of his prayer, we need to familiarize ourselves with a very important concept and reality that emerges in Scripture that you see on the screen. And that reality is the glory of God. Notice again, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, here's the background quickly. The Greek word doxa is the word that is translated glory in the New Testament. It is a word that means splendor, brightness, or honor. And when we think about this full orb definition of glory throughout not only the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, we see that the concept of, of glory is the concept of heaviness. Glory is, is weightiness. It signifies gravity or greatness. Glory also expresses internal greatness or excellence. And then finally, we see that glory denotes Praise. When we think of glory, we think there is someone I can praise and must praise. And I want to do a short study with you to give you the, the background of this as we think of the glory of God. In Exodus chapter 16, you don't need to turn to any of these passages, but we see that the Israelites saw the glory of God in the cloud. Now, think for a second. Put on your imagination thinking cap. Can you imagine witnessing the glory of God in the cloud. Sometimes it's an interesting thing to preach the word of God. Sometimes I, or most of the time, I guess, I, I get very excited and passionate when I preach. And I, I can't tell you how many times I'll be preaching, I'll be, call it preaching up a storm even, right? And I'll look out. It's the weirdest thing. I mean, part of me, like the kind of mean part of me, wants to go, hey! <laughs> you know, just for fun. Maybe I'll do that one of these days. But I think the kind, compassionate part of me just overlooks it. And then I drive home, usually I think, wow, how do you sleep through, through the Word of God? Either I'm messing it up, or I don't know what's going on. But imagine being a, a, a first-person witness to the glory of God. Here's the bottom line. You would not be asleep to witness the glory of God. It would capture your mind. It would capture your affections. It would capture everything in your being. You would be drawn to the glory of God. That's what Israel saw. In Exodus twenty four sixteen. the glory of God dwelt on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, verse 17, the very next verse, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. In Exodus 33, 18, Moses made a request of God. Do you remember this very basic request? He said, God, show me your glory. So he had a desire, he had a passion to see the glory of God. In Exodus 33, 22, God's, Moses, God's response to Moses is as follows. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And what did Moses see that day? Some of you know exactly what he saw. He saw the hind quarters of God. 
Exodus 40, 34, the cloud covering the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Again, no one is asleep when the glory of God shows up. Numbers 14, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Do you know what's coming? That day is coming and no one will be asleep. Numbers 26, Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and they fell on their faces. Does that sound like Paul? And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. First Chronicles 29, yours, O Lord, is greatness and power and glory and the victory and majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above it. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 24, 8. Who is this king of glory? The strong Lord, mighty, mighty in battle. Psalm 29, 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And so the focus of Paul's prayer finds its basis, and this is so important, his prayer finds its basis in the reality of the glory of God. Look at it again with me. Verse 16, I pray that he, God the Father, may grant you, the Ephesians, according to the riches of his glory, dot, dot, dot. Think about this. Riches means abundant wealth. In other words, the request that the apostle makes to the Father is according to the never-ending treasure chest of the glory of God. It is this, this massive, infinite, and eternal treasure chest of God's glory that Paul says, on the basis of this treasure chest, the one that we were just in awe over, As the glory of God is manifested to Israel in the days of the Old Testament, it is on the basis of this treasure chest of the glory of God that I make this appeal. That I make these requests. And there are three requests that form the basis or the focus of Paul's prayer. Request number one, which is found in verses 16 and 17. It's a request... That the Ephesians would have courage to live for God. If I could have a personal conversation with, with each one of you, I can almost guarantee that every one of you would say, that's a prayer request that I need today. Are you with me? I need courage to live for God. High school students, junior hires, do you need courage to live for God? As you sit in a classroom where a, where a teacher promotes the theory of evolution. If you're a college student and attend a, a university that's not a, a Christian university. And you have a, a professor that says you're a fool if you believe in the living God. If you're in the office place and have, have an atheist or an agnostic in your workplace. You need courage to live the Christian life. 
To live courageously means to, to demonstrate mental or moral strength. It means to persevere. It means to withstand danger. It means to be fearless in the face of adversity or difficulty. And so the essence of this first request is a prayer for spiritual power. Again, out of the treasure chest of the glory of God, Paul says that the Ephesian, the Ephesian believers would be strengthened with power in their inner being through his spirit. That word power comes from a Greek word. It's the, I'll give you the Greek word because I think you'll appreciate it. It's the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis. Have you ever played with dunamis? That's something you don't want your children to play with. That's where we get the English word dynamite. Dynamite. The word translated power means ability or supernatural power. You remember that word as emerges in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where we read, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Paul says this spiritual strength then is to be received from the Holy Spirit. He receives this strength in the Holy Spirit in the inner being, literally in the inner man. That is, it is the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity where we receive our spiritual strength. He, the Holy Spirit, is the agent behind the courage that Paul prays for. Now, think with me just for a moment about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as we said earlier, is the third member of the Godhead. So far, so good. The Holy Spirit is, as we already said, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. It gets better. The Holy Spirit is the one who is credited with raising Jesus from the dead. It is the Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus to withstand temptation in the desert. You remember that scene in Luke chapter 4? When Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40, night, 40 nights and the tempter arrived on the scene and said, Turn those rocks into Dave's killer bread. You remember that? And how did Jesus withstand that temptation? He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that moved the hearts and the, the minds of every author of Scripture to pen the Word of God. Bruce Ware says, They wrote the truths that were on their hearts with the words, grammar, and syntax that they chose to use. The Spirit was working in them so that what they wrote was simultaneously their Word and God's Word. It is the Spirit you see who awakens people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. It is the Spirit who regenerates sinful hearts. It is the Spirit who conforms all of God's people into the image of Jesus Christ. And so back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. It is through the Spirit, this powerful Spirit, Paul says, that we will be strengthened with power. It's like a double plan words, isn't it? I remember a, a preaching class I had with Dr. Luis Palau. And he used to use the phrase mighty power. That's how we would say it. Mighty power. He'd say, my wife does not like it when I say mighty power. It's like saying power, power. And I always loved it when Dr. Palau would use the, those phrases. The, the mighty power of God. Paul employs the same strategy here. 
He says that the Ephesians need to be strengthened with power in their inner being through the Holy Spirit. Why do we need this spiritual power? Why do we need this courage? Because apart from divine strength, we are spiritual weaklings. Apart from divine strength, we are powerless. Apart from divine strength, we are inclined to give up. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Apart from divine strength, we succumb to discouragement, fear, and anxiety. Paul the Apostle was prone to all of those things. Apart from divine strength, we are inclined to sin. I'm sure you're very aware with Paul's struggle as he spells it out in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. He says this. He says, for I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Can you relate to that one? You wake up in the morning ready to live for God. Until eight o'clock in the morning. And then what happens? You succumb to temptation. You succumb to discouragement. You succumb to uh, depression. Sinful anger. You get in the car and head to work, and that's all it took. What happens? Well, Paul understands. He says, now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that is, and it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. What theologians refer to as indwelling sin. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it, but it is a sin that lives within me. You see, when we receive courage that Paul prays for here. When we are courageous, our perspective is totally recalibrated. When we are courageous, we are reminded that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul goes on to say, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have a message this morning for, for fathers. And this, this can be applied to, to moms and to women and to young men and young women, to everyone. But I want to address fathers in particular. Why? Because fathers are the leaders in their homes. And my encouragement in light of what we're studying here, seeing that the Ephesians are, are clearly prone to discouragement. They are prone to wander. That's why Paul prays for courage to live the Christian life. That dads, what you need to do is you need to be up before your wife and your children. Not to watch ESPN, but dads, you need to be up to hit the deck. You need to be up in the word. You need to be up to hit the deck and hit your knees to intercede on behalf of your children and your wife. And to pray for yourself as well. 
Again, if we could have personal conversations, one-on-one, back and forth, throughout the week, I think we would find we are all prone to wander. We are all prone to discouragement. And so, fathers, I want to encourage you, be the first person up in your home and hit the deck. Hit your knees and read the scriptures and intercede on behalf of your family and thank God for spiritual strength that he promises to give you. The first thing that Paul prays for here is courage to live live the Christian life. But there's a second prayer request that emerges in verses 17 and 18. Here we find Paul praying for the, the Ephesian believers to receive comprehension about God. Comprehension about God. Look at verse 18. That they would be able to comprehend, there's the word to mark, with all the saints, what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. This second prayer request concerns spiritual understanding. The Greek word, which is translated comprehend, means to lay hold of something intellectually. It means to grasp something intellectually. And so Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would have the strength to intellectually grasp with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God. God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. One of the questions says, what is God? Say, what a question. What is God? Is there an answer to that question? Well, there's not a comprehensive answer because we are finite creatures. But here is what the Westminster divines concluded. And it's a good answer. It's a biblical answer. They wrote, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Paul's prayer is this, that the Ephesians would comprehend this God, that they would understand this this mighty God in their heads as well as in their hearts. Now, please understand this great mystery. Paul is not praying that the Ephesians would, would comprehensively understand God. You understand that's impossible, right? I remember I had a professor in seminary who, who made a statement that I scoffed at under my breath. He said, even in heaven, you will never know all there is to know about God. I have since thrown away my scoffing remarks because he's exactly right. Because even in heaven, even you and I who have glorified bodies, followers of Christ, we are still finite. Therefore, we will never know all there is to know about God. Wayne Grudem adds, because God is infinite and we are finite or limited, we can never fully understand God. Even though we cannot know God exhaustively, we can know true things about him the psalmist says great is our lord abundant in power his understanding is beyond measure you remember in the book of romans paul writes 11 chapters focused on doctrine and theology 12 through 16 or practical application he gets to the end of the first major chunk in romans romans 11 verse 36 and he concludes with oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever amen here's paul's prayer 
He prays that the Ephesians would have this deep comprehension about the ways of God and the character of God. Would you do me a favor? Hold your finger in Ephesians 3, and we're going to look at several passages because I want you to see what is at the essence, I believe, of Paul's prayer. Hold your finger in Ephesians 3 and go to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. Or turn in your tablet to Psalm chapter 8. I'll never get used to saying that. Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would comprehend the God of Psalm chapter 8. Let me read it for you. O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout all the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him rule over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals and the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would comprehend the God of Psalm chapter 8. Move with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And there's something in me that says we could skip through this, but I say it's absolutely not going to happen. We need to see the essence of Paul's prayer. Isaiah chapter 40, begin with me in verse 10. See, the Lord God comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his rewards accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those who are nursing. Now listen, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills in the scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who has gave him who gave him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Look, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. There's so much more to read on Isaiah 40. But I would say that Paul's prayer is that the Ephesian believers would comprehend in the head and in the heart the God of Isaiah chapter 40. Flip back to 1 Chronicles, the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And one verse in 1 Chronicles 29 verse 11 that says, Yours, Lord, or yours, Yahweh, 
is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty. For everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all. Would you flip quickly to Exodus chapter 15? One more verse in Exodus 15. God is to be known in the head and the heart. Exodus 15 says, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? It shouldn't surprise you by now when I tell you that Paul the Apostle has a passion that the Ephesian believers would know, would comprehend the God of Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. One final passage, if you would be so kind to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Brace yourself. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and with many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came out of his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger or wrath of God, the Almighty. And he has his name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As Paul the Apostle pens this beautiful prayer in Ephesians 3, his prayer is that the Ephesian believers would comprehend the God of Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Now back in Ephesians chapter 3, you may be wondering, how exactly will this prayer be answered? I hope you're not asking if it will be answered, because of course it will be. But if you're wondering how it will be answered, verse 17 gives the answer to that question. It says, And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I I pray that being rooted and firmly established in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints who this great God is. The answer to how this prayer will come to pass is that we grow in our understanding of who God is by being rooted and grounded in love. These are words that I have studied for a long time, and every time I see them, I get excited. The word rooted comes from a Greek word that means to be established, to be fixed into the ground. And I may have told the story before, but I remember in Legrand. We had uh, some rules in our neighborhood where we lived that everyone had to have two trees in the front yard. After all, LeGrand is the city of trees. Whoopee, right? And so I made the painful decision to go down to the nursery and actually pay money for two trees. I'm just not a big green thumb kind of a guy, right? And uh, 
But I started to get excited about the prospect of, of digging the hole and doing it all by myself and planting these trees. And I, I planted, and there are these little teeny skinny, just miniature trees, about, about this tall. And I would water them on a daily basis. And I started to get more and more excited as they started to grow. I, I'm almost embarrassed to admit to you that I went on a daily basis with my uh, ruler. And I go out there and right? And I would, kind of like a kid, you know, you, you, you track your progress and height. And so I, would, I was so excited. And then the trunk started to get bigger and bigger. And I was just like, I got it going on. Like, I, I am a gardener. It was really cool. These trees are rooted in the ground until the storm came. And I looked outside and I thought I can throw my tape measure away because my trees are destroyed. The wind had just blown them to smithereens. And so I was no longer a green thumb. What did I learn from that? That trees need to be sufficiently rooted That we need to be rooted, as Colossians 2 says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. But Paul uses another word. We are not only to be rooted into the ground theologically, we are to be grounded, which means to establish, which means to be strengthened in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so how does that happen? How are we in a culture that is moving more and more away from theological education? How are we to be grounded and rooted in the Christian faith? Well, I want to give you one example, a, a practical way to get grounded and rooted. In a, would you hold your right hand up in the air? And we're going to, uh, instead of putting this on power, PowerPoint, I thought we'll just, now you can put your hand down. Your hand will get tired, right? But we'll let your hand and, and look at your pinky. And I was actually tempted to have the kids get out, like find a, ask if your mom has a Sharpie. And I thought, no, I better not do that and get in trouble. Imagine if you wrote down on your pinky, and this is an old, old uh, model that the navigators populated, uh, made popular over 30 years ago. The first thing we need to do is hear the Word of God. If we were to get a handle on Scripture, if we were to be grounded and rooted in the faith, we hear the Word of God. How does that happen? We hear it from pastors and teachers, people who will equip us in the Word of God. Romans 10 says this, faith comes from hearing. Think about that. If you don't hear the word of God, I will guarantee you, you will not grow. You can be the smartest, sharpest, most educated person in the room. But if you don't hear the word of God on a regular basis, you will not grow as a Christian. Your next finger, the word read. We not only hear the word of God, we read the word of God We read the Word of God on a daily basis, and the best way to do that is to read it systematically, to read cover to cover, Genesis through Revelation. Your next finger, your middle finger, is to study, to study the Word of God, which deepens our conviction in biblical principles. And then finally, your index finger, you you memorize the Word of God, which enables you to use the sword of the Spirit to overcome temptation and have verses prepared for ministering to people. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a a, a biblical counseling session or uh, sharing my faith in an evangelistic session, and a verse just pops into my mind. And it's no question, it's a verse that I memorized when I was nine years old. It is the Word of God, the Spirit of God, to encourage the people of God. And then finally, on your thumb, you meditate on the Word of God. 
You meditate on the Word of God on a daily basis. Those five principles will help you in a very basic way to get a grasp on Scripture so you begin to be sufficiently grounded and rooted in the Christian faith. And so Paul's third request is for communion with God. For communion with God. He's asked for spiritual courage. He's asked for spiritual comprehension. Finally, he says, God, I pray that these dear believers would have communion with God. Notice verse 19. And to know, mark that word know, Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a request for relational intimacy. The word know comes from a a, a very important Greek word. It's the Greek word gnosko. And it's the word that means knowledge both in your head as well as your heart. Knowledge in your head and heart. This is the knowledge that Paul talked about often in the New Testament. He prays that the Ephesians would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Which means that we go beyond the basics of understanding in our relationship with God. His prayer is that the Ephesians here would enjoy vital communion and relationship with God. One writer says it like this. You do not hold communion with God in anything until you receive it by faith. You never experience the sweetness of his love until you receive it. You must then continually remind yourself that God loves you and embraces you with his free eternal love. When the Lord is by his word presented as father who loves you, think about it and accept it. Then embrace him by faith and let your heart be filled with his love. Set your whole heart to receive his love and let your heart be bound with the cords of his love. So said the great Puritan writer John Owen. This relational intimacy that Paul is after means that we are filled with the fullness of God. The the word fullness means completeness or overflowing. This is the depth of communion that, that Paul prays that the Ephesian believers would have. A man tells a, a very interesting story. Where he says, I got off at the Pennsylvania depot as a tramp, a bum. And for a year, I begged the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder and I said, hey, mister, can you give me a dime? As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? And throwing his arms around me with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I have found you. You want a dime? Everything I have is yours. Think of it. I was a tramp. I was a bum. I stood begging my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he'd been looking for me to give me everything he had. And that's exactly what we experience with the living God. This is just a glimpse into the heart of God who desires to fill each of us with his very fullness. Now, I don't know personally a Christian who would turn down the offer of spiritual courage, spiritual comprehension, or spiritual communion. And these certainly are not empty requests. They are not mere words written on a page by the apostle. These are requests that the apostle Paul anticipates will come to pass. And so he concludes his prayer on this triumphant note in verse 20. He says, 
which is his benediction. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. My friends, this is the supercharged prayer of Paul to the Ephesian believers. But here's the thing that struck me as I studied this passage. This is a prayer that he prays for you. This is a supercharged prayer that he prays for you. And of course, my prayer as your pastor is that you too would have courage to live for God. My prayer is that you would comprehend in a deep way the the character and the ways and the attributes of the living God. My prayer is that you you would enjoy sweet communion with him. And so I would close with a, a very important question. I'm going to ask you this morning, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, what is it that's, that's prohibiting that courage to live for God? What is it in your life that prohibits that spiritual comprehension that Paul prays for? What is it that is a, a roadblock to communion with God? What is it in your life? And it might be something very, very good. It also might be something very, very bad or evil. What is it that is is jettisoning those three prayer requests from coming to pass in your life? I want to encourage you to, to pray this supercharged prayer for the members of your family. Fathers, I want to encourage you to be the first one up in your home. That you would be on your knees interceding on behalf of your family, your church family your elders, and prayer for the nations. May the supercharged prayer become a reality in your life. To him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for the the great model of a a God-centered prayer that Paul prays on behalf of his friends in Ephesus. My prayer would be the same for, for our church family. God, that we would have courage to live the Christian life, that we would comprehend who you are, your ways and your amazing character, understanding your attributes more and more on a daily basis, and that we would enjoy vital communion with you, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gospel that has liberated us from the power and the penalty of sin and will one day liberate us from the the very presence of sin. But until that day, God, May we have spiritual courage. May we have spiritual comprehension. May we have spiritual communion with the great God of the universe. Thank you for the, the pleasure, the privilege of knowing you today. First in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.